Welcome to the Dear Mama Project, a personal and spiritual development podcast for moms, where we explore motherhood as a catalyst for personal transformation. I'm your host, Nikki McCullen, a matrescence educator, women's life cycle guide, and the mother of one charming and cheeky five-year-old. In this podcast, I will bring you practical tools, personal insights, and inspiring interviews to help you in your own journey of growth and transformation through motherhood. Thank you for tuning in. I am so grateful to have you here, and I can't wait to go on this journey together. Today's episode is brought to you by Alignment, my group coaching program designed specifically for mothers who want to reclaim their matrescence as an opportunity for expansion and growth. In Alignment, I guide you through a journey of self-discovery that will change the way you feel about yourself, motherhood, and womanhood forever. We explore the identity shifts of matrescence, unpack the cultural shoulds of motherhood, identify your own values, and create your own definition of success. I will help you detox from guilt, comparison, and overwhelm, which so often frames our experience as mothers, and instead learn how to navigate this time with self-compassion and confidence. In addition to self-paced video modules, you'll also be supported by regular online women's circles, a private Facebook group, and live Q&As and discussions with myself and other mothers completing the program alongside you. The community within Alignment is incredibly special. It is the sisterhood and holding that we so deeply crave at this time of our lives. If you're ready to rediscover yourself and feel inspired and excited by the woman that you are now, you'll find all of the details for Alignment in the show notes. Hello and welcome back for our first official episode of the new season, season three of the Dear Mama Project podcast. In today's episode of the podcast, I'm speaking to Kimberly Johnson, a sexological body worker, somatic experiencing practitioner, yoga teacher, postpartum advocate and single mum. Kimberly has been working hands-on in integrative women's health and trauma recovery for more than a decade. She helps women heal from birth injuries, gynecological surgeries, and sexual boundary violations. Kimberly is the author of the forthcoming book, Call of the Wild, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Own Power, and Use It for Good. She's also the author of the early mothering classic, The Fourth Trimester, and is the host of the Sex, Birth, and Trauma podcast. In this episode, Kimberly and I chat about how women truly need to be supported in the fourth trimester, sex and intimacy after children, healing from trauma, and her new book, Call of the Wild. This was a really inspiring and expansive discussion. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, Kimberly. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Hi, Nikki. I'm really excited to talk to you about all of the things in today's chat, but I thought it would be great just to start with a bit of background on your work because you've had a really incredible journey and a very unique journey with the work that you do in the world today as a doula, a yoga teacher, a sexological body worker, and a somatic experiencing practitioner. You also wrote a very groundbreaking book, The Fourth Trimester, in 2017, when the concept of a fourth trimester and a need to support women after birth within Western culture was still a relatively new kind of concept. So you're also the host of your own podcast, The Sex, Birth and Trauma Podcast, and you have a new book, Call of the Wild, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Own Power and Use It for Good. Can you tell us about your journey and how you came to do the work that you do today? Sure. Well, there's lots of big turning points because my all of my work is comes out of my own biggest learning experiences or journeys to the underworld, however you want to look at it. The silver lining comes later. But the major turning point for these last two books is really the birth of my daughter. Before that, I was a yoga teacher and a body worker, and I knew a lot about my own pelvic floor, and I 
felt like I knew a fair amount about birth. And then I had a baby and I had planned for the birth that I wanted a home birth, but I just didn't know anything about postpartum. So I didn't have a postpartum plan because I'd never even heard those words in the same sentence. And then I had a really tough time recovering. I had a tough time physically. I had a tear in my pelvic floor that wasn't healing right. It was really painful. My lower back and sacrum were hurting all the time. I was having some fecal incontinence. My milk supply was really low. I was really hungry all the time. And I just was having a really hard time. And I was very confused because I just thought, okay, you know, the birth was pretty good. And what, why is this so hard? Cause I grew up and I had a lot of cousins and I was always taking care and babysitting a lot. And so I just had no idea that I, as the mother was going to need anything specific to recover. I didn't know there was anything to recover from. I thought it was just get through the birth intact and then you figure out how to take care of your baby. So it took me six and a half years to heal myself. I was told that I needed a full surgical pelvic floor reconstruction. I knew I didn't want pelvic floor surgery. So I went on a search to figure out how I could heal myself. I went to Asia. I was teaching a teacher training in Thailand. I went to Malaysia and I learned that there was cultures that really took care of new moms after they had babies. And I saw that and I saw, you know, in, in where I was living in Thailand, there was a center where you got a massage every single day after you had a baby for 40 days. And I thought in my experience, how getting a massage one day would be like, oh, I treated myself and got a massage, but it wasn't like, oh, this isn't a luxury. This is something that's a necessity. On that path to healing, I found somatic experiencing trauma resolution work, and I found sexological body work. And those were the two things that really helped me heal the most. So I trained in those modalities. I did the sexological bodywork training in Australia, actually. It was the first time that I went to Australia in Bris- outside of Brisbane. And I started talking more about what was happening with me. And women just started telling me their stories. And then when I wrote the book, The Fourth Trimester, the book readings were like confessionals. People would walk up to me with their book afterwards and then lean in and be like, I've never had an orgasm or I need to talk to you. I need to see you. And, it, and in hearing me talk, they finally were putting puzzle pieces of their experience together that hadn't made sense before. Mm-hmm. So that's how that book and body of work came about. And then the next thing that happened was sort of my earlier big underworld journey. I had a, I had a couple before I had a baby, but was that I was sexually assaulted when I was in college. And as I was working with more women and mothers and, you know, women that had had babies, but also that had had losses or miscarriages or gynecological confusion or surgeries, you know, cervical scarring, one ovary removed. So, so much of the time we're confused about our own situation. We don't, you know, we don't really remember that something happened. And then it's like, oh, that area is getting contacted in a non-threatening way. And we remember, oh, this thing happened, or I don't have a ureter, or just, there's just so much stuff that goes on in the female reproductive system. So I, I started doing that work and then the Me Too movement happened and I had practices in five cities and they were all super long wait lists. And I was like, I've got to start being able to help people with this, not one-on-one because this culture that we live in where everything is so shrouded in shame and you know the word postpartum is now synonymous with depression like you just say like I had postpartum and it's like well yeah everyone has if you've had a baby but it doesn't have to mean that you are you're depressed I decided to take people through an online experience of going from being in more of a freeze or flight state in the nervous system into a healthy fight response because so many women in their healthcare and birth experiences and sexual experiences, there's movements they couldn't make or words they couldn't say. And in the attending to those nervous system cycles, we could cycle up into completion and then they would be able to have the sex that they wanted or be able to have a pap smear that felt respectful of of their body and even maybe positive. So that's what this 
this book is about call of the wild, how we heal trauma, awaken our own power and use it for good is how do we move from those habitual states of fitting in fawning, freezing and fleeing and, and move into a healthy fight response. Yeah. And as you said, unfortunately, there's such a need for this work with so many women experiencing sexual trauma or unfortunately in in birth as well. There are so many women coming out of birth with birth trauma. In Australia, there's one in three women who go through birth who then meet the criteria for birth trauma. So there is such a big need for this work. For someone who's new to some of this language, can you explain what somatic experiencing is and also what sexological bodywork is? Like, what are those two concepts? Sure. Also, I just want to say that trauma is something that it's not an event that happens. It's how our body stores that event. So it's the difference between, you know, in life, stressful things happen and they happen to all of us but it's stress that gets stuck in our body that then becomes trauma, that then becomes a repetitive pattern that's often confusing. Like you're on the conveyor belt and that same thing is happening and you're not sure why, whether that's the same conversation or the same relationship or the same power dynamic. We're in a collective immobilization right now because you and I are talking in May of 2021 and we've been in 14 months of a pandemic. So There's a lot of immobilization responses that if you've had earlier ones, get kicked up to the surface. Sexological bodywork is a profession that is sex education. It includes hands-on work. It can include, not always. And the code of ethics of sexological bodywork is that the practitioner is always clothed and wearing gloves. Uh, So, and it's only one way touch, Mm -hmm. but it includes genitals. So you know, if you're a massage therapist, you drape breasts and genitals. If you are a practitioner in general, like a PT or a doctor, they do everything they can to avoid touching labias and clitorises because they don't want it to veer into inappropriate or arousal. But at the same time, vaginas don't really like to be contacted by poking Mm -hmm. and direct entry. They like general contact, you know, the vulva is the vagina's neighborhood. The vulva likes to be contacted and some readiness before moving farther in. So even the way that our healthcare and, and, and like we're segmented out contributes to that feeling of alarm and like the lack of sort of being an integrated whole. I mean, when I was a yoga teacher, I, I just realized after becoming a mom, my whole yoga practice, like we never talked about reproductive anatomy. We talked about pelvic floor because pelvic floor is generic but a woman's pelvic floor and a man's pelvic floor are totally different, shaped differently, operating differently, different number of openings. There's all kinds of differences. So in the process of elaborating on this work in my own personal understanding, I really recognize like, wow, all of these fields that I'm in are disproportionately impacting females because the male body is the standard and the females, the derivative, it's like a special interest case is like, oh, and then there you go. There's the woman Um, situation kind of thing. So sexological bodywork just includes genitals in bodywork. Somatic experiencing is the work of Peter Levine. He, in the 70s, was studying animal behavior and medical biophysics and realized that wild animals don't experience trauma, but humans and domesticated animals do. And he became very curious about that. why, Why is that? And in the studying of animal behavior and then the application of that on human clients that would come to him, he recognized that it was the body, as Bessel van der Kolk said, the body keeps the score and that we can have a cognitive narrative about what's happened to us. We can understand it. We can know why, what our mom or our dad did and, and, you know, the constellation of factors that cause something. But as long as it's still lodged in the body, there's going to be this disconnect between how we want to be or how we think we should be with how we actually are. So in somatic experiencing, we're helping people renegotiate that. So if you think about a a trauma as like a record skip, your system just keeps skipping at the same place every time. The resolution is like smoothing over that skip. So then you can hear the complete song play. 
Yeah. So in a, a, like to give an example of what that might be like, would that be that if you have had something happen to you in the past, you could be in a situation that's not exactly the same, but reminds you of it. And then you, your body goes into a stress kind of response and a trauma response. Is that how it would kind of happen for someone as an individual? Yes. Mm -hmm. You just might not know what it is. Yeah. So you might know what it is. Like you might smell a certain cologne and then all of a sudden you're remembering the ex-boyfriend and then you're remembering the dynamic and then you're, you're back into that old space, but you might smell the cologne and have that visceral response, but not even know that that's what caused it. Mm -hmm. So that's what's happening. A lot of the time is that there's a repetitive reaction that then becomes kind of familiar and normal. So every time something is hitting that one spot, you're having that reaction, but you don't really know why. Um, that happens a lot with sex where it will be like what somebody knows how to interpret is just like, I don't want it, which is a limit. And being able to say, I don't want is, you know, a, a way of asserting your own space and boundary, but they're not really sure why they don't want it or like what it is they're not wanting. And so the tools in the call of the wild would help you parse that out. Um, some people say like, "Ugh, when my partner gives me like the look in quotes, I just want to like get out of there and I don't know why. So that tells me, okay, they're having a flight response and the look to them is not just the look. It's a series of things that's associated with the look. So if they could communicate about that, then they might be able to get somewhere if they're, if they're actually interested in connection other than just that response that then becomes just like, oh, that's just what's happening all the time. And then one person feels rejected and the other person is confused. And then they just sort of stay in their separate camps, kind of wondering what's happening. You get the language to be like, you know what? I noticed that when you give me that look, I feel like I'm recoiling and I would like to move towards you, but I, I don't really know how. Do you have any ideas about that? And then it, it would, or like, or when you give me that look, what is it? Is there another way that you could say what you're trying to say with the look? Or is there an image and experimenting with it? Like, well, what would happen if you were in the other room and you did that? Or what would happen if, you know, there's so many different ways of experimenting. And mm -hmm. I've had women say like, oh, once I learned this more, I realized it wasn't that I didn't want sex. It's that like the way, like when my partner approached me from behind on the right, I had a certain a certain reaction. And so it wasn't, it wasn't just a reaction to that person. It was a reaction to having someone physically close in a certain dynamic or the minute that their partner went to get it on top of them. That was the moment when they just dissociated and started to check out and not know, you know, become confused. Mm -hmm. So you start to realize it's your physiology and then we don't assign that moral meaning to it. And we don't go off on one of like, well, maybe this is the wrong person for me. And like, here I go again, like now, how do I get out of it? It's like, it's just dealing with what's happening in that moment. Yeah, that's so powerful. And I think that I'm really interested to talk to you about sex postpartum, because I think there's so many different things that are happening in that relationship. And as you said, sometimes a woman might be working through changes in, in terms of how she wants to connect with someone. And that can be hard to negotiate with a partner when they can perceive it potentially as rejection as well, as you said. So I wanted to first though have a quick chat about your book, The Fourth Trimester, because I feel like you were one of the real pioneers in this space and we weren't really, I mean, I had my son in 2016, I never heard the word fourth trimester, but now I can see that it's become a part of our vocabulary and it's become a part of our understanding, which is amazing, but we still have so far to go in terms of how we support women and mothers postpartum, recognizing that we're going to be postpartum lifelong, but there's obviously going to be periods of it that are more acute than others. I'm interested to know in your work that you do with um, women and mothers, what do you think we really need to understand about supporting women postpartum still? What have we not got? Hmm. One of the reasons I was so dedicated to this topic is because I feel like if we can get it right and do it better, we're going to repair so many things about how we've gone, how we distance ourselves from organic intelligence, from like how nature works and how the earth works. 
you know, there's the structural pieces that need to change here in the United States. The average woman takes 12 days or has 12 days off postpartum as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez duly noted, uh, it's illegal to separate puppies, dogs from their puppies for like eight weeks, but it's legal for women to be back working 12 days postpartum. So, you know, internationally, that's really different. I'm a huge fan of Jacinta and what they do in New Zealand. There have been a lot of shifts. My book came out in 2017. 2020 was one of the first elections where maternal leave was on the docket and, and it was considered an important thing to talk about. Before that, it was never even talked about. I think the pandemic has really surfaced like what mothers are actually going through and also brought that to the political level. So I ab absolutely think that you know, it, company policies have changed too, though. There's a lot of progressive companies here in the U.S. where anyone who has a child gets six months off. So we need to do those things. But on the personal level, we also, as women, have to prioritize ourselves. And we have to, even though vulnerability, we often see that as weakness, we have to understand that we are vulnerable postpartum. And everything that a baby needs postpartum, a new mother also needs. So you would never leave a baby alone for more than a couple of hours. A new mother needs a constant food source, just like a baby needs that. A baby needs to be swaddled. A mother also needs to be swaddled. We are so hyper-individualistic in the West that we think like, oh, the baby's out. Now it's time to like strengthen that baby and get it independent. But in fact, we're an interdependent unit, especially for the fourth trimester for those first three months. But you know, how long the postpartum time is, is like, it depends on the kind of birth that you had, the kind of recovery that you had, the kind of support that you've had, how many other children you've had or other, what your fertility journey was like, how many losses you've had. You know, if you've had three losses and then a baby, you're really on your fourth postpartum. And all of those hormonal shifts are going to compound one another. All of the laxity of your ligaments, it's going to be a compound experience. But the good news is, is that it's a very latent time, which means that your system is so open that you can heal things that have happened at that time too. So we tend to think of just everything that can go wrong, but when it's done right, which means you have what I call in my book, the five universal needs met, which are extended rest, nourishing food. So like really collagen rich, nutrient dense food, loving touch so that you have contact and you have something that's actually flushing your tissues out the presence of wise women or spiritual companionship and contact with nature when those needs are met you can heal almost any kind of a birth experience in that postpartum time it's just that so few people actually have that support because now we need we almost need paid services to do what our neighbors used to do but the other thing is when people will say, well, this is a very privileged perspective, it's actually that earth-based indigenous cultures are doing much better at this because they often live intergenerationally. There's often an expectation that a sister-in-law or a mother-in-law will help out during that time. And there's way more intact rituals and you know, specialized foods than we normally have in like the white overculture. Mm -hmm. So what we continue to need to do, but I, like I said, I do see it changing is centering the needs of the mother. I think in our feminist idea, but what I see with a lot, I'm a birth doula. What I see with a lot of my clients is that as feminists and women, we think that the roles should be equal. And so we want the partner to contribute equally but the fact is that the partner who's had the baby is the one who has to recover. The other partner, per, you know, experienced stress, but it's not their physical body that went through all of these transitions. And because we're a culture that's very separate from body, we tend to just ignore that. And with women, a lot of this is invisible because it's happening internally. So you can't see what happened to your uterine ligaments. You can't see what happened to your, your you can't see what happens to your cervix, right? So it's all it feels very vague, but it's really imperative. You know, this, it, it kind of makes me crazy. This whole emphasis on the postpartum solution now is let's screen everyone for mental health diagnosis to me is just really off, off base because most people are going to have a men. I mean, 
I would say probably 90% of people, if they answered honestly on the checklist, would get a diagnosis because if you are confused about why you're in pain and you're getting sent to a PT and if you cry at the PT, they're sending you to the therapist. But if you go to the therapist, they don't know anything about incontinence and they're not asking you about like, are you in pain and, and like what's happening? It's hard to put the puzzle pieces together. So my hope is, you know, with the first, first book, the fourth trimester, I have a deck of cards with that and I have a journal that's coming out. And the journal is really supposed to be a keepsake so that we can give it to our own children so that we remember, you know, cause my mom was always just like, I don't remember, <laughs> like, I don't know, I don't remember. And, you know, once I dug further, it was like, wow, my mom had three kids and three pelvic floor reconstructions, but it was just normal. Like, oh, you just do it. You just go back for the procedure. And I'm like, whoa, mom, that's a lot to go through, you know? And our moms, a lot of them did go through a lot. So it's hard for them. They think like, a lot of them think this is like princess behavior. Like, why did you, why do you need so much if I didn't need this? Mm. That's why I like the book because then the mom, the new mom doesn't have to do all the explaining that you can just say, oh, I read this book and like, you should check it out. I think the people supporting me should read it. It's interesting. And then you can use the book to talk about the ideas mm. instead of feeling like you have to do all the educating. Yeah, totally. And that's not what you need to be doing at this time. It can feel like that's another job on your list to try and educate the people around you and how to support you or to even understand that this is a time worthy of support. So I think that's amazing. And I'm very excited that you're bringing out your journal too. Very cool. I loved that you spoke about how, yes, there is risk in postpartum and there's, you know, there can be real challenges and, and that that's there, but there is also that potential for healing, as you said. And I know for many of the women that I connect with, they go into often postpartum for the first baby and they, they go in with their kind of like blindfolded because we're not prepared in our culture for what this is really like and it can be glossed over and then they do want to go through a different experience the second time around and I think going into it knowing that this is a, an opportunity to heal the experiences that have gone before is really powerful definitely I mean it's the people probably the biggest readers of my book the fourth trimester are either birth workers like doulas or people who had a bad time the first time around and are like, I want to do this differently. But hopefully in the next five years or so when there's more leave and, you know, because what it requires also is, is those of us, I mean, so I have a dream and my dream is that women who are retired get trained by the government to be the people who are helping the new moms. Because normally the people that train to help new moms, they have young children themselves because they go to the training because they are trying to repair their own experience, which is beautiful, but it's really hard to take care of your own young children and other people's young children. So we need an intergenerational plan. And the good thing is that a lot of these things are very simple and I'll just give my idea away. So anyone listening, if you can put this into practice, go ahead and take the idea. It's fine. I just want more people to get help. I think that if every woman had someone come to their house one time a week for three hours, in those three hours, they got a couple of meals. So standard postpartum meals, which are like basically bone broth and kitchery. They got a vaginal steam because vaginal steaming as long as you didn't have a cesarean, you can steam if you had a cesarean after six weeks. But if you have a vaginal delivery, you should read more about it if you want to learn forced trimester steam study.com. But you can start steaming at four days postpartum. So somebody would bring you a steam and then they would listen to you. And you would know that once a week, someone was just coming for you, not for your baby, not for a visit, not, but like just to take care of you. Can't you feel that, Nikki, that like that would just change everything? Yeah. Totally. Totally. And the so it doesn't have to be every day, all day. Like people get this in their mind. Like it's an all or nothing. Like, well, I can't afford da 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 da. So I'm not going to do it, but it's like, but two or three hours a week, like, and knowing that you can count on it would really help. 
Totally. And I love that you really emphasize that it's about the mother, because when you're going through postpartum, it's like the attention's like so focused on the woman during pregnancy. And then as soon as it's postpartum, it's like kind of looking past the mother into the baby. How's the baby going? What's the baby doing? So the mother really does need to be centered and having something that was just for her each week would be so powerful. So if anyone can make that happen, yeah, um, please do. <laughs> And like I said, I mean, in Taiwan, what happens is that Taiwan and Hong Kong, they have what they call confinement nurses. And so it's retired women that the government train and they learn infant massage and they learn how to do the postpartum massage and they cook the morning meals and they kind of establish a rhythm. And when women get pregnant there, the first thing they do is hire a confinement nurse so that there's somebody that's available. And I think also it's really important to point out that there's no way to do this perfectly we're humans and we're human animals and life is unpredictable. I mean, we're in the freaking pandemic. There's all kinds of obstacles. It's just about knowing that it's important and doing a little bit more so that you're not pushing yourself. You're not going out to target or whatever the Australian equivalent of target is, you know, you're really recognizing how energetically open that you are at this time and that you're, you're swaddling yourself. So even if you have to go to work, two weeks after you have your baby and that happens to be leaving your house or, 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 you know, life happens. People have funerals they have to go to or that you still, it's the way that you're regarding yourself and that you're not, you know, I've had people come to my office and they're coming to me to talk about how they don't have a sex drive. And then they tell me they're three and a half weeks postpartum. And I'm looking at them and I'm just like, sister, what are you doing in my office? Like, I want to escort them home, you know, just like what's going on. And like, and the fact that I couldn't tell that it was just like, wow, this person is so put together at three and a half weeks postpartum, the amount of pressure and stress to get yourself dressed and get out of the house and even be worrying about your sex drive at that mm. point. It's like, no, we're just worrying about your organs going back in the right place. Mm. We're worrying that you're eat, you have enough caloric intake so that you can nurse your baby. You know, to me, and now that there is more postpartum awareness, people do a lot of self-diagnosing. So they'll call me and say like, well, I'm incontinent or I have a prolapse. And it's like, but you're 12 days postpartum. Like mm. you just need to be horizontal out of gravity and let your body do what it needs to do. Like there's, there's no reason to drive around to appointments right mm -hmm. now. You need to have people come to you. Yeah. So, but it's, we need to emphasize that when you have a baby, no matter how, no matter how that happens, you're in an altered state. It's an altered state of reality. So we need people around us protecting us. So you know, if anyone here has ever had their wisdom teeth removed or you've been under general anesthesia, you think you're normal right away. And then a week later, you're like, I was definitely not normal. <laughs> That's kind of how it is after you have a baby. You can, you don't have good judgment about how normal you are mm -hmm. and your habits going to tell you, well, what's healthy is going out for a walk or what's healthy is smoothie and salads or what's healthy is calling a friend and talking. And in fact, at this period of time, those things might not be good for you at all. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we need community because we need that other gatekeeper saying, come on, honey, just lay down. I know it's, it feels claustrophobic, but like, just lay down, go ahead. I'm going to take your phone, like no more social media. You need to just shut down. Here's your mm -hmm. eye pillow. Like I'm going to, you know, you need somebody else that's reminding you mm -hmm. and, and saying this is, it's like short term for long term. And yeah. we're just not very good at thinking long term. And we don't have these cultural practices in place. So normally, other people would just, they just won't let you, you mm -hmm. know, they just won't let you leave the house. Like that's just not happening. So yeah, we just need to give ourselves a lot of grace. And, you know, like I said, I, I wrote a book about an experience I didn't have. Mm -hmm. So I'm not standing over here saying like I had the perfect postpartum team and I knew exactly how to do it. I didn't even know how to have one, but in the process of, of working with a lot of women, it, it's, I mean, I have one friend, her name's Jennifer Mayer. She has a business called fully funded by 40 weeks. And her story was basically that she had her first baby. She was a birth doula. She ran a doula agency called baby caravan. And she just, didn't have the savings to take very long 
work off, right? Because it's also really different to be an entrepreneur than to have a salary. So, and there's so many of us that are entrepreneurs now. So she went back to work at two weeks and she had Hashimoto's, which is a one in 12 autoimmune diagnosis that women get postpartum. And so she had to do like, you know, huge protocol to overhaul her diet and heal herself and all those things. And then she decided she was going to have another baby. And based on what she learned from her own experience the first time, which, you know, and, and she's a perfect example of someone who intellectually knew, like she wrote her undergraduate thesis on feminism and midwifery, something like that. And she'd supported tons of birthing people, but just that tendency to think that you're the exception or that it doesn't matter that much. Mm -hmm. So when she had that happen, she was like, I am going to this next time I'm taking at least four months off. She started a radical savings plan. She told everyone I contributed, like, basically, I don't want anything except for money to go into this fund so that I can take these four months off of work. And she did. And she called it something like her fluffy nest. And she just, she's like, I just want to be in like my soft blankets with my cats and my kids. <laughs> and she, it really changed so much so that now she's teaching other women how to do that so that you know, it's, it's a cultural thing too. It's like, well, we, we plan for weddings and people know how to, to offer a wedding gift or, you know, to save up for a wedding really like for my, my daughter's 13 now, but it's like, I should be saving for her postpartum nest, you know, and that should be just a part of like, because it's what women need and it's what families need mm -hmm. because we're talking all about women mainly because people rare, rarely do. But of course, like I said, it's a mother baby dyad. So this is also how babies learn how to attach and their nervous systems are formed by our nervous systems. They're, they're bathed in our nervous systems. Again, not reason to recriminate yourself. I was in a super stressful situation when I was pregnant and when I gave birth and you know, each, each family has their own story and I'm still unwinding certain of those patterns with my own daughter. And, you know, it's just life again, but if we want to build the world that we want to belong to, that's filled with people who know how to love one another, even if we're not the same and where we can create a sense of belonging without having to conform mm -hmm. and that we respect bio-individuality then we, we have to tend to the early, to the birth, to birth and early years. Mm, yeah. And as you said, it's not just about not, I don't just isn't the right word, but it's not only about the mother. It's about the whole family unit. They're all interconnected when the mother's well, the baby's well, when the baby and the mother are well, the family's well, when the families are well, the community as well. It's this whole sort of flow on effect and it has a really big um, ripple. I also really love that you pointed out that part of this is um, also protecting us from ourselves postpartum and how we can want to kind of get back onto it and, you know, pretend like nothing has happened or get back to normal as quickly as possible. And how we do really need sometimes, yeah, some protection from ourselves and our own sort of want to to look like we're doing it perfectly and to be nailing it and in whatever sort of way that we've decided nailing it looks like. But I see that a lot as well. So thank you for bringing that up because I think it's a big, a big thing. And part of this is around, I think, you know, postpartum and, and the transition that we're going through with matrescence is that our ego wants to get us out and about and, you know, taking the photos and doing all of the things. And it's almost like a surrendering and a dissolving that's kind of happening when we're postpartum and that that can be really painful, but it's also very fruitful when we go through that experience where we do have to sort of surrender to the process and, and let the journey unfold. I definitely think that social media has complicated this, the way that you were talking about how when women are pregnant, you know, you see those pictures where they're in profile and like one month, two month, three month, four month and showing the belly growing. And then the baby comes. And then what you see is just the baby with the one, two, three, four, five, and the mother is gone. But also, you know, social media is just so extremely curated and it's ripe for what I talk about a lot in my second book, which is social nervous system comparison and just 
all the ways that we are comparing ourselves and that this desire for connection and belonging can actually flip on us uh, in a way that we are either tolerating and appeasing situations that are not healthy for us or our child, or just, you know, fitting in and doing it like everyone else tells us to whoever that is, because it's on it, you know, there's pressure on both sides. So there's just such a need for honoring our own way, right? Because we all mother differently. And, and this is, that's part of the time when we're learning how to mother. So we need to be able to hear our own instincts that's mostly what our child needs from us. But if we have a lot of interference or our own ego is pushing us to fulfill a past expectation of who we were before this moment, we miss out and we end up having to circle back to it. And that's physiological and spiritual. I try to really talk to people about this because if people who are listening, if you're listening and you're like, wow, I, I really didn't have any of these things postpartum. And I do feel like I'm not doing well because of that, or I still haven't healed. That's really common. And luckily we still have cycles. So the getting your period menstruating is analogous to a postpartum time. So if you have postpartum healing to do, you can do that while you're menstruating. You can still belly bind, you can support your organs, you can take full rest. And if you're not bleeding anymore, then you can start to pay more attention to lunar cycles and you can respect that flow of rest during your lunar cycle. And also, you know, because we don't have this really long view of health, it's like how we go through postpartum is also going to impact how we go through menopause mm -hmm. because it's another time of fallowness in a certain way. And our, in our culture just loves spring and summer and productivity and, you know, fastness. And we don't honor those slower times. So, as we look at just how we want to move through, or I want to move through my life gracefully, but also, you know, what is actually in organic alignment, it, it's really helpful to know we still have, you know, that record I was talking about in the record skip as women, we have more of those. And so there's more opportunities for things to maybe, you know, more record scratches, but there's also more opportunities for repair. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us, particularly how if you haven't had the postpartum experience that you wanted to, that you have that opportunity with menstruation. And I think that that's really, really powerful. So thank you. I want to have a chat to you about sex and intimacy. And we did kind of touch on it a little bit at the start, but how does sex and int intimacy change when we become a mother? And what are some of the common challenges that you see women experiencing in after pregnancy and birth in terms of intimacy? Well, we could probably go on and on about the challenges and everyone listening probably knows most of the challenges. Well, number one, I like to borrow from Laura Gutman who wrote the book, um, maternity coming face to face with your own shadow. Mm -hmm. She called the postpartum time, the feminization of sex. So it's the centralization of female pleasure. And that's really not what most of us have seen growing up. We've seen power imagery about sex. We've seen hot sex and it's really penetration focused, very hot and heavy. Usually if I talk to people about sexuality and they think their sex life is really good, then they'll tell me like, They'll tell me how many times a week they have sex. And then they'll tell me their sort of routine. Like, well, I go down on her. She goes down on me. She comes, I come kind of thing. And like you check those boxes and then that's good sex. Well, after having a baby, most people aren't really not and not everybody. I mean, there's a lot of variety, but most people aren't really super thrilled about penetration, whether or not they had a vaginal birth. And that confuses a lot of people who have cesarean deliveries because they're like, why is this, why does my pelvic floor feel different if I didn't even have a baby come out of my pelvic floor? My experience with that is that the body, that a cesarean delivery is an incomplete cycle because mammals give birth, most mammals give birth vaginally. So even if you needed the cesarean, it's still an interrupted cycle. So I've had people on my table where I'm working on scar tissue and their uterus starts contracting because it never contracted before. And it's as if the body needs to feel something is coming out before something can come back in. It's really important to recognize if there's physical pain. If a lot of times people are like, well, I don't want sex 
And then when we really work together, it's like, well, they're actually really afraid that they're going to be con- they're incontinent or they're afraid that something down there is not in the right place or something unpredictable is going to happen, but they haven't really put words to that. It's just that they, because they have a new baby and they're, you know, busy and all those things, it's just like, they, it's just been a no, but they haven't really parsed out what exactly it is that feels strange or off-putting or just like, I don't want that. And then as a culture, we just really have two things that we tell women postpartum. We either tell them, you can say you're touched out. So a lot of people will say I'm touched out, or you can say I have low libido, but we don't really have any elaboration on that, which is like, okay, so you don't want the sex you're being offered. What do you want? And what is the sex that you would want that would feel like receiving? Because we are indoctrinated in our culture to believing that women are gatekeepers of sex and that it's, you know, we're basically deciding, even if that's not the dynamic of your specific relationship, that you're deciding when it's a yes or a no. And it's something that you're giving. It's not something you're receiving. So if you're, if you have a new baby and you think that sex is something you're giving, you're not going to want to give anything more than you're already giving. And that's how women usually think about it. Like, I just, I don't have anything else to give. But what if sex is something that you're receiving? And what if it's actually giving you energy to do what you need to do? Then what does that sex look like? And for most of us, that's a really confusing conversation or thought to have at a time when we're most vulnerable, most exposed, and probably less rational and verbal than we've normally been uh, because we, we haven't laid that foundation earlier. But in a way, it's a really great opportunity and it's a maturation process of really deepening a relationship of, you know, experimenting like what would feel good. Okay, I know what wouldn't feel good, but what would feel good. And I I really recommend that if you've ever gotten the advice of maintenance sex that you don't take it, you don't want to train your body to be operating against what it feels good to it. So then people say, well, you know, doesn't postpartum sex hurt a little bit. I mean, it's, that's kind of like saying, doesn't losing your virginity hurt a little bit. It doesn't need to. So there's no reason, you know, this, it might be, there could be discomfort, but you would want to be minimizing that discomfort because otherwise, if you're training yourself to have sex and and it happens a lot, I have a lot of people that come to my office and they're like, I've been having sex for three months because I was trying to like warm myself up and I was trying to like get into it and it hasn't stopped hurting and I'm still doing it. Then you have to reckon with your own relationship to your body and your body trusting you again. That's really powerful. And I think a lot of people kind of well, in the conversations that we've had on the podcast, a lot of people can feel pressure to, again, like kind of get back to normal. Like we were having sex this many times before we were doing it like this. So I have to go back to what it was like before. But I think the, what you've just said in, in terms of like flipping the paradigm and going, well, what would it actually look like to, to do things differently and what actually feels good to me now and recognizing that it might be different from what it was before, I think is really important because yeah, there is a a lot of pressure just to kind of go back to what you were doing before and I guess as well it can be really difficult to navigate those sorts of conversations because it isn't something that we probably talk about a lot in general sex but then you you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings or especially when there's so much change going on in the relationship dynamic already with the introduction of a new person who might be taking up a lot of the energy and the focus within the family unit that you, I guess, can be a little bit aware of not hurting anyone's feelings. Sure. And in my, in the book, the fourth trimester, really, it, it feels like almost half the book is about preparing for that both preparing yourself for the shifts and preparing your relationship. It's really important for people to have conversations, open conversations about, you know, how do you deal with stress? How do you deal with stress? If you notice me going into this stress response, how can I support you? What are you going to need for me? In general, um, women are much more interested in sex postpartum when they've been well taken care of. So I tell partners like invest in these kinds of care because If you're depleted and in pain and you're exhausted, you're really not, you're likely to even have resentment on top of also the other things you're experiencing. I always suggest that if it's true, 
to start conversations by saying, I want to be closer to you. And as women, a lot of times, I think that we feel like we have to have all the answers or we have to solve all the problems. I think it's also just stating the elephant in the room, you know, like, I know this is really different. I feel really confused about this. I'm not sure what I want. What do you think? You know, what do you like, what would feel good to you? It's, it's definitely a time where we also have to take responsibility for ourselves, right? Like it's like, we're not responsible for anyone else's orgasm. Now, I, I do believe that in an intimate relationship, it's inner, you're, you have an inner connection. So maintaining a line of communication about what those needs are, but it's really helpful to have some conversations ahead of time. And it's always best to have sex conversations, not while you're, I mean, it's good to talk about sex while you're having it, but if you have a dynamic that you're trying to shift, it's good not to do that in the bedroom. It's good to do that when you feel resourced and you feel connected and you have a little bit of time. But I find that it, it really is about respecting this early postpartum time understanding that and and for some reason people just think they're going to be the exceptions they're not going to be the ones that change that much their lives aren't going to shift and it's hard to convince people otherwise but if you can see different as not worse and then allow yourself to grieve like it's okay to grieve the sex that you used to have and that you used to want and be confused by not wanting that anymore but we're we are evolving as sexual beings and, and what we are, our cravings, our desires, our longings change over time. So it's really helpful to attend to that, but also not to catastrophize or imagine that what's happening in those six weeks or three months is like setting something in motion that can never change or that's not going to shift because it does shift over time. And as long as you're doing your best to stay connected with the person. Sometimes what happens is that the baby comes between you and the partners forget to look at each other and they both just look at the baby all the time. So it's like prioritizing that you're actually in contact with the other person. So you know where they're coming from. Yeah. The Gottman Institute, the research they did on, on relationships postpartum was basically showed that men, what men want the most, the first year postpartum is to be acknowledged as necessary. So they might only know how to ask for sex because we don't really teach men how to say, I want to feel closer to you or, you know, so they might be asking for sex, but what they really want is to still know that they're important and still know that they are a necessary part of the family. Yeah, I think that's such a powerful point. And I've heard you speak about that before. I was actually listening to a podcast interview with my husband and I like looked at him and he like looked at me and I was like, okay, yep, that was definitely how he felt as well. And it was good to be able to open up a conversation with him about that because I think you're so right that many men aren't taught the the skills to be able to have those conversations or that can be really vulnerable for someone to say and it as you said it's much easier just to ask for connection in that way rather than sort of articulate what they might really be kind of craving beneath that so it's really really powerful I've also heard you talk about the need to prioritize pleasure within our lives and particularly as mothers and how that pleasure kind of changes over time can you talk to how we can increase pleasure within our lives or what that might actually look like? The context for pleasure, I mean, there's kind of, there's a lot of context for it, but one of them is just that in general, again, a yang quality is like productivity and quickness and linearity and a yin quality is quiet and dark and moist and circular. So pleasure can be in, in both of those spaces. Sometimes pleasure is simply an orientation. So it's really just like right now, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, just noticing if there's anything that you could do that would make it even more enjoyable. Like what would make this experience even more wonderful? Would that be to pick up something and hold it? Would it be to touch your own face? Would it be to make eye contact with the person that you're in the room with? It's, I think we have these connotations with the word pleasure that it's like this, it, it becomes another thing on the to-do list. Like, well, then, then I'm, I'm going to have to do all of this. And then I have to feel pleasure. Uh, it's like, as you're nursing, is there something pleasurable about nursing? You know, I don't like to drive all that much. I grew up in Southern California, so I do drive a lot. 
but either I'm going to continually dislike driving and keep complaining about it, or I'm going to have to figure out some way to make driving more pleasurable. So sometimes it's like literal like that. And then it's also just noticing how kind you are to yourself. Like, can you, could you be even more kind to yourself? Mm, yeah, I love that you've spoken about how it's not necessarily do, adding more things to the to-do list. It's just maybe even being more present for the pleasure that is available to you if you're with, if you kind of allow it to be there. Sometimes we're so focused on getting on with the next thing or, or our mind's busy that we're not in the present moment and just absorbing what's happening around us. And like you said, that example of nursing was like a perfect example. Instead of being on our phone and sending an email or whatever it might be, can we be with with the experience a bit more hmm, beautiful so I could talk to you all day but I'm mindful of time so I wanted to finish with a chat about your book I love the title call of the wild can you tell us the story behind the title and how this relates to trauma so like I mentioned earlier wild animals don't experience trauma but humans and domesticated animals do For me, the call of the wild is something that is internal. So it's an internal call of instinct that I can hear. So I can track it like an animal knows where the water source is and can make it there or can sniff out where its prey is that I can track my own experience in that way and find the undomesticated me that has all of her intact self-protective mechanisms. I think those mechanisms for a lot of women come online for their children. They find their lioness because they're ferocious in protecting their children, but we can't always do that for ourselves. And then I think for me, the call of the wild is also something that's happening out there, like the how the planet is communicating. And we are of course wild, we are animals. So we're not separate from nature. But what is the earth needing from me? And and how do I live in a way that reflects that coherence and congruence with the land that I occupy and with the creatures I roam the land with? The reason the jaguars on the cover and my particular connection to the jaguar came from an experience that I had with a therapist in Rio who was from the Amazon. And I lived in Brazil for eight years. And he, I was telling him that I was feeling really so exhausted by single parenting and having to be the mom and the unconditional love. And then the, like what I was considering to be like the dad doing the boundaries and disciplining. And I was just feeling kind of really sorry for myself. And he said, you're a Jaguar. Look at you, look at your skin, your golden skin, you're spotted. And he said, it's the female that teaches the cubs to hunt. So in that moment, he just fractured that idea that I had, that it was like, oh, I have to, I can't be fierce and compassionate at the same time. That like, where is that compassionate ferocity? And that's in my work. What I found that women need most is how do we come out of these freeze experiences where we've been the rabbit or we've been the antelope or we've been the deer where we couldn't say what we were really thinking. We couldn't find the words, we collapsed. We went along with something that was not okay with us, but we didn't know until afterwards so that we can be present in every moment because really trauma is the things in our past that don't let us be present to what's happening right now. Yeah. Wow. That's so powerful. And how amazing, what a full circle moment for you to have received that and for now be sharing that with other women and and awakening their Jaguar qualities as well. That's so cool. I'm going to include all of the details for the book in the show notes for anyone who wants to check it out, but for anyone else who wants to connect with you and your work, can, where do we find you and how can we learn more from you? You can go to KimberlyAnnJohnson.com. If you want to read the first chapter of Call of the Wild, it's it's on the site. So you can go to KimberlyAnnJohnson.com slash chapter and read the first chapter for free. You can find me on Instagram at least for the next year or so. And if you're interested more in the Jaguar course, you can go to KimberlyAnnJohnson.com slash Jaguar and get on the wait list. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kimberly. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You'll find all of the details for the episode, including links to Alignment, my group coaching program, in the show notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you could please leave a written review on the Apple Podcast app. This helps the podcast reach more mums who need to hear these conversations. And I also personally find it super motivating to hear how the podcast is helping you. And lastly, I would absolutely love to connect with you over on Instagram. You can find me at Dear Mama Project. Drop me a DM and let me know what you thought about today's episode. I hope you have a wonderful day and I will see you again next time.